and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 352, a part one of my conversation with percussionist, educator, and a director of the online percussion conservatory, Joshua Vonderheide. The summer continues along here in Missouri and at Mizzou. The big news on Mizzou's end is that we have a new director of the School of Music. As of this week, Jared Rawlings is now our director. He comes to us from the University of Utah, where one of his colleagues was previous podcast guest Mike Sammons. And our longtime director, Julie Gaines, who was long time ago a percussion podcast guest the first year I had it, heads back to teach in the percussion area, along with Megan Arns, a frequent podcast guest. Julie has done an overall great job here as director, and she was ready to move on to her next thing, whatever that is going to be. And we're looking forward to seeing what Jared brings to the table for the next bunch of years. It's all very exciting. And with that, we get to our conversation with Joshua Vonderheide. By way of backstory into how Josh and I got into contact. Earlier this past year, I had the chance to chat with Edward Choi for the podcast. As I was reaching out to Edward, I ended up doing so through an avenue I found him online, which was through the Percussion Conservatory. Doing that is how I came into contact with Josh, who, of course, is the creator of the Percussion Conservatory. He funneled me to Edward, but also said he was a fan of the podcast and would be happy to be a guest on it at some point. And here we are. Joshua has been very active in many pursuits. His primary vocation right now is the online percussion conservatory, which he is not only very passionate about, as you'll hear, but is continuing to put up great content featuring many of the best in the field of concert percussion. He's also active as an educator and performer in the Houston area, particularly with the Houston Symphony, and has a wide range of interests. As is the case frequently here on the show, we went long on discussing many topics, so today, for part one... We'll hear about Joshua's time with the Malaysian Philharmonic and moving back to Houston, the Percussion Conservatory, growing up in Texas, his competitive swimming career, and his undergrad years at Juilliard. Next week on part two, we'll get to the rest. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on June 21st, 2023, and it begins right now. Okay, so Josh, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are right now. So I am currently playing extra with the Houston Symphony, and I have been very fortunate to be there a number of times this year after a successful sublist audition with them. I believe that was last November, and that has been a really, really warm welcome to being in Houston. I feel very... Oh, just relieved after not being in an orchestra anymore that there were still professional opportunities for me. There was always this huge risk of leaving my previous position with the Malaysian Philharmonic that I might just not really be playing with orchestras anymore. It's a very competitive scene. So I've been really, really happy to be doing that. And then the next probably largest thing that I am doing is the Percussion Conservatory, which is not a percussion 
specific uh, playing role, but I do do some playing for the Percussion Conservatory, but mostly what I'm doing is kind of shepherding the community into exciting content projects, getting the best out of people from all over the world. And that takes up a tremendous amount of time. That is really my full-time job. I have a private lesson studio that I host here at my home, and I also teach in a couple schools in the Houston area here in Texas. And I think in the upcoming school year, I'll have nearly 20 students. So that is a very vibrant studio, and I'm very excited to see where all of them are going to end up, whether percussionists or otherwise. So what prompted your move back to Houston? It's a great question. It was not just one thing. Uh, when I had left to go to Malaysia originally, I always, in the back of my mind, knew that that was not my forever destination. I, I knew that I was going to be there for as long as I still was finding growth. I wanted to have a professional opportunity that really pushed me. And the section there really did that for me. Um, Malaysian Philharmonic there with Matt Prendergast. I learned a tremendous amount from him. He's a fantastic principal, fantastic player. And it was really that kind of, okay, I've been doing that for a little while. And then into COVID, that was the major first reason about leaving. Um, the orchestra just felt like it was not going through the COVID growing pains well, and I wasn't feeling very confident and secure about the future of the group, although it looks like they have more recently started to perform again. They're hosting more serious concerts again. That was very encouraging to see. But at the time, there was really no guarantee that was going to happen, and I wasn't super happy with the contract they had offered me. So that was one major thing. And then there were some other just life things. I missed my family. They were here in Houston. I grew up an hour south of Houston, Texas. I had been recently married, and it seemed like a good time to maybe just start thinking about starting a family, where we wanted to do that, the type of place we wanted to do that. And we live in southwest Houston now, and so there's just an incredible Chinatown that's about 20 minutes from our house. And so my wife originally is from China. She's Chinese. And that kind of perfect combination of being back close to my family, being back in the United States where I was a citizen, where she could become a citizen now that we're married, and still having access to this huge Chinese culture here in town just felt like a really good fit for us. And then probably the most driving factor of all was just that I really wanted to pursue the percussion conservatory full time. And with all the time zone difference of trying to interact with artists in the United States, it was really, really tough. I would be hosting classes sometimes at one o'clock in the morning to start the class, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was challenging to say the least. And the phone calls, also just getting on phone calls is really important with people. A lot of people don't want to communicate on Zoom. They don't want to communicate on Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp. They just want to talk to you on the phone. And so being able to make those phone calls more easily in a more easy time zone has really accelerated growth at the PC. And so that's something that I knew would happen, or at least I was very confident has would happen, and now it has happened, and that's been great. How long had you been in Malaysia with, uh, with that orchestra? And... What did you mean by kind of like coming out of the pandemic for them? Sure. So the 
I had, that's a great question. I have to think back for a second. I, my first time playing with them was in late 2016. I think I went out to sub first for a couple weeks, and then I had a trial with them in early 2017, and then joined the orchestra formally when I moved to Malaysia in July of 2017. And I was there all the way through December 2022, so almost five years. The, the, last two, the last two of those years, though, was COVID, and so there was almost no playing going on at all. Um, the, the policy, really, of the orchestra was just, and, and not just the orchestra, but the whole country was really just to shut down. It was a very intense lockdown. There was military with semi-automatic rifles surrounding apartment condos. Uh, it was a little bit dystopian, and so I didn't feel... A hundred percent safe is not the right word, but I did. I didn't feel at ease um, sure. being in that environment. There was also just some mild harassment going on of being a foreigner in a time where a country is very scared. There was some xenophobia going on, and so I didn't always feel extremely welcome in the country during that time. Again, I think things have drastically changed since uh, the country has reopened up. I don't want anyone to have a bad view of Malaysia because I had an incredibly positive experience there overall. But that, that COVID time, specifically with the orchestra, kind of the general idea of what happened was that they, they didn't like that there were so many foreigners in the orchestra, uh, including myself, who were sort of at this high pay, high salary, very high profile position, kind of an ivory tower position that was right in the Patronus Twin Towers, which is the center of the entire city. And the board of directors is all run by Patronus, which is the state oil company. So they're very much uh, Malay. They're very much pro the state, pro the government, pro nationalism, pro Malaysia, right? And so we had, I think at the time that I was in the orchestra, the, the most amount of Malaysians we ever had in the orchestra was about nine, maybe 11. And sometimes we'd have a few more with subs, but it was very small compared to like the 70 other, the 70 people from other countries, 70 foreigners who were in the orchestra. And so what happened with the orchestra is just that if you were um, not Malaysian by nationality and you were a non-principal player, in 2021, in the summer, over half the orchestra basically got fired on a Zoom call by the CEO all at once. And I was one of the lucky people who kind of survived it and was offered a contract. Um, the principal of the percussion section had taken a temporary role in another orchestra back here in the United States. And so this position kind of came up and I was offered to uh, still be in the orchestra for however much longer I wanted to be, basically. And I just didn't feel comfortable with this idea that half of the orchestra was being decimated because they were foreigners. The contracts were only, like, for two years at a time. What happens if in the next two years they decide to say the same thing and now they're getting rid of principals too, now they're getting rid of other foreigners? It just didn't feel like a good fit for being an American in that orchestra anymore. And so I decided to that and all these other motivating factors, uh, success of the company, getting married, wanting to be closer to home, all those things kind of just pushed me to make that decision to come on back to Houston. You know, during that, like the early part, before the kind of the, what happened with like half the orchestra having, being let yeah. go, 
were people being still on salary or were they just like, was everyone just, okay. Everyone was yeah. Still. So during that time, it the first was, year of, of yeah, COVID. during the first, when COVID broke out. So I had an extremely unusual situation that when COVID first broke out, uh, my wife and I, my now wife at the time, she was my fiance. We were on a little backpacking trip through Bali, Indonesia, and we mm. had planned to be there for about six or seven days yeah. And we were in Ubud uh, in Bali, and it's just this awesome forest area. There's tons of monkeys. There's this famous Bali swing that we did. You can try the Kopi Luwak coffee. We were living it up, having a great time. And we get this kind of alert saying, uh, you should come back to the country as soon as possible because the border might close. And it, that was like the evening before uh, our flight. Our flight was the next morning. We were like, all right, well, our flight's the next morning. I don't know how much sooner we could really get back. And when we went to the airport the next morning, the country was closed. And so we could not get back into Malaysia. And so what turned, what started as was supposed to be a six or seven day trip turned into nearly six months that we were in Bali, Indonesia. Oh my goodness. And so we were hopping around, you know, at the beginning it was hotels so that we felt safe. And then it was Airbnbs. um, And it was, in one way, this sort of idyllic scenario of everyone everyone else was seemingly trapped inside their apartment and we were on this tropical island, which was incredible. At the same time, every beach was closed. Again, there were police out on the streets heralding people to go back into their homes. Uh, it was not the perfect experience everyone thought. Also, there was just no guarantee that I was gonna keep my position if the orchestra started back up again and here I am trapped in another country. So it was a pretty stressful time. We tried to make the best of it. Uh, But yes, during that time, that entire time, we were paid at full salary, which was incredible until it wasn't. (laughs) It was incredible to be be paying, being paid full salary felt like we were being so supported, like they really still wanted us to be there. Again, the whole orchestra is funded from uh, the state oil money. I mean, uh, our budget for the orchestra is quite literally a drop in the barrel for them. Um, it's very, very small by comparison. So we, I felt like that was a huge show of support to the musicians at the time. And then came this a little bit bait and switch where the, at the CEO at that time, who has since been removed as CEO, said, hey, well, we've been paying you salary this whole time. That was very gracious of us, but this can no longer continue. We need a new game plan. You're all fired. So I kind of felt like, why not, you know, like so many other orchestras around the world, take a pay cut for that time and say, everyone's at 50% or 30% pay scale. You're not gonna have to play at all. Please save your money, be careful. If you need to go back to your home country, go back to your home country, but here's this pay cut, but we're gonna keep you all on when the dawn rises again. And I I kind of felt like it was intentional to sort of pay us the whole time to then justify, sorry, we just can't keep paying you. Oh, this actually has nothing to do with money. This has everything to do with you are a foreigner and we just kind of are ready for a different looking orchestra. Now, to be fair with all of that, I don't think that that's necessarily the worst thing in the world. I think it's a very good thing for a country to have its own people creating classical music. 
So while this was a very negative overall experience at the very tail end for so many members of the orchestra and the way that they went about it was kind of atrocious, the bigger picture of we want people from our country to be employed by our nation's only very, very serious orchestra, that is a legitimate business mindset. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just that the, the quality of the orchestra can't take a hit like that. It doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. And I think that they didn't understand how the inner workings of an orchestra work, that you can't just replace people who have spent the past 30 years developing the most strong skill set on an instrument that they possibly can, and then hire a bunch of new people and a lot of college grads and a lot of young people and a lot of people with no previous orchestra experience and kind of expect it to be on par, which is why I think they kept the principles to hopefully train those new people. And I, I do hope that I, I wish the very, very best for the orchestra. You know, I'm very pro classical music. Malaysia needs classical music. And so if, you know, you know if, if they end up being the most prominent Asian orchestra in all of the land, that would make, that would be my best possible outcome for that group. I wish them nothing but the best. I do hope that they learn from the experience. That's kind of how I would wrap up on that. You moving back to Houston, you come in and you're just like, all right, look, what, what can I do? I mean, do, do <laughs> because, yeah. cause you, I mean, I know that you had, you have the connections of family. You also went to school, uh, rice. So, what do you end up when you decide you're coming back? What what do you how do you kind of get your feet wet basically? So before I moved back, I made a very important phone call to Mike Warner of the Seattle Symphony, who I had known uh, from spending time at the Music Academy of the West, which is now I think just called Music Academy. Uh, and I called him and I just said, Mike, you know, you're someone kind of completely outside of my situation. You know what it's like. You're living in one of the most expensive parts of the United States right now. You know, the, the, this housing boom was happening where inflation was going up and you can't afford, there's no way we were going to be able to purchase a house. So, Mike, what would be your suggestion for me? If you had to just trade spots with me, kind of like, what would you do? Where would you go? And he said, maybe not here, man, maybe not Seattle. It's because it's so expensive right now there. And he started outlining, outlining maybe some of the other places that might feel similar, just because he was kind of tapped into what's going on in the orchestra scene all over the States. And he, he didn't tell me to go in any particular place, but it just felt like the smartest thing to do would be to go where I knew absolutely worst case scenario, if I needed a safety net, I had people in Houston sisters, parents that I could rely on. I knew that I knew that everything was going to be okay if I needed to just be a bum for six months. Now, luckily for me, that didn't happen. I moved back and I just got real scrappy with it. And I made phone calls and I reached out to people that I previously knew who are in the teaching, the public education system. My parents had both been public educators uh, their whole life. So it was funny enough, my dad was a choir director at a school where Chad Crummel and Chris Crummel, if you know them, was their father's, uh, was a band director. So my dad and his dad are both teaching at Brazosport High School. And 
I had therefore known that family, like since I was a kid, Chad Crummel now plays in the Navy band. Chris Crummel is an extremely successful band director here in Houston. And so I'm, I'm kind of seeing, like looking around, I'm looking at stuff, uh, applying to this type of job and, and not getting it, applying to this type of job and not getting it. And I see Chris Crummel post this uh, thing on Facebook, hey, we're looking for some percussion help. And it was a bit late in the game to be posting. And I was like, they must really kind of need somebody. So basically, as soon as I saw that, I gave him a ring and asked him, what type of percussion help do you need? And he said, we just need someone. We have like some funding for this high school. It's a brand new high school. We don't have a real position, full-time position, but could you come help, help out as much as possible and you'll be a contractor 1099 type of employee. And so that's what I did. And then I started building my private lesson studio. I kept running the percussion conservatory. I got on the Houston Symphony sublist. I did as many gigs as I could and I slept very little for a year. <laughs> and it was really hard. It was a very difficult transition, but it was very rewarding. I learned a ton. I'm extremely grateful for all the people who helped me get back on my feet here in Houston. Uh, all those people know who they are, even if it was just phone calls. They were very supportive about helping me just kind of continue on with my vision. And despite everything of that difficulty, the Percussion Conservatory still really continued to grow. And my wife got involved. My wife, Jenny, is now basically our lead video editor and helping me a lot with the kind of back-end admin side of stuff. Big shout out to Stephen Keener, who runs uh, all our events and artist relations. And, and between the two of them, they really helped keep the PC alive and not just alive, but really start to thrive. And now I've really that's what I'm doing my, my nine to five as percussion conservatory now because of those people. It's a really, really exciting time. And, and I look forward to the future of not just sort of getting on my feet, but <laughs> learning how to run and jump and get over in incredible new hurdles because we've got a lot of work to do. All right. So tell the beginnings of percussion conservatory, when, why, how, where, Yes. So the beginning of Percussion Conservatory was definitely born out of COVID. Um, it was just like so many other people. You had all this time on your hands for some sort of project that maybe you had considered for a long time, but never really came to fruition because it's such a massive project. When are you going to find the time? How are you going to find the time? So many new skills that you need to learn, some sort of financial investment at the front end. And I had been doing another job online that was called Expat Car Sales. So one of the cellists from Malaysian Philharmonic, and this company still exists. Anyone can go online, www.expatcarsaleskl.com. And they sell uh, used cars, and they also do a fleet of rentals. And so I had built that website. I made the logo. I did the branding. I did all their social media for, I think, over two years. And that was sort of my side hustle while I had been in the Philharmonic, was learning these digital skills. But then all of a sudden, I was separated from Kuala Lumpur, and it was a bit of a different experience. I was stuck there in Bali, and like, what am I going to do with this time? And I could still work for expat car sales, but it was the middle of COVID, so there was really no business going on. And I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if I could apply all these skills that I learned to some sort of mission that I'm really passionate about with percussion? And so the initial concept was just to 
do some sort of crowdsourced funding for a scholarship. I knew that at the core of what I wanted to do was build a really big scholarship because there had been some people in my life who were incredible percussionists who were very, very in debt from the education system. And I was not a big fan of that. And both my parents being educators and sort of being one of the lucky people who did not go through that experience of having these massive loans. I mean, I had my fair share, I think 60 or 70,000 of loans, but some, some friends over 200,000. I was thinking, man, what can I do to start fighting back, at least just within the percussion community, a little tiny bit? And that was the sort of the germ of, well, what could we do? How do we get people excited? And then came, okay, we have to have a website. And then came, we need to do master classes. And then came Stephen Keener's on board. Let's do tutorials. Let's start a YouTube page. Let's, and it just kind of built on, upon itself. There was no real massive, amazing business plan that got it all started. I just started. I just said, I want to do this thing. What can I do? And so the first scholarship that went out was for $1,000 and a lifetime membership. The next year was $2,000, a lifetime membership, and a majestic percussion drum. This year is going to be $4,000, a majestic percussion drum, and a lifetime membership. And we're trying to double it every year if possible. It's a very lofty goal to keep doubling as the numbers get higher. But we're going to try. We're going to do our very, very best. And it's going to take a lot of people. But that was how things got started. Yeah, it was just a computer in lockdown. What did you see as the, I guess, the vision as you start to move along um, in terms of who's featured, what's it for, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff? Selfishly, for me, what I tell the people who teach with us is, teach to me. Imagine that we're on this Zoom call and the person you're teaching to is me, you know, someone who's already kind of been through school, they kind of have their feet wet, they know what's going on in the community, and they're just looking to continue to grow. They're already a, a professional or they're a pre-professional, but they really want to advance their career. They really want to get better. And so that's like the selfish aspect of it. That's the Josh Vonderheide version of why am I continuing to do this is because I'm a lifelong learner. There's a lot of people out there who feel the same way and they just want to be in the community and continue to get better. They're hungry for success forever. You know, there's no end goal for them. It's the, it's the journey sort of thing. However, I don't think that that's truly the most important thing of what we do. I think it's the selfish version of what we do, but the far more important version of what we do is getting kids who need access to really high quality information, access to that information sooner in their career, more easily in a more organized way, better than YouTube, most likely better, no offense to any private lesson teachers out there in all these different parts of the world, but there's a lot of people who don't have the pedagogy that they claim to have and are charging students way too much money, and that's not okay for me. So while I was over there in Southeast Asia, and it's not a specific problem to any person or place or country, but in general, I'm generalizing here, I saw a lot of dubious things being told to students while I was in Southeast Asia. And I wanted to make sure that even though, even if that was not malicious, I don't think the, the education that they were being given gives them a fair chance to get employed in Europe, in the United States, in Australia, in Singapore, in Thailand. I was just thinking, man, if these kids continue on the pathway that they're on, they're gonna end up in debt, 
two schools and they're never going to end up being percussionists. This is not okay. What can be done to solve this? And so one of our major, major missions and one of the big visions is just to create more percussionists, to have more percussionists be able to be at a really high level, to be employed so that no matter where you are coming from in the world, no matter who you are or what your original circumstance was, you could get access to the best quality world-class information possible. And you could do that on a very affordable budget. For example, once upon a time, I flew to Berlin to take some timpani lessons. The cost of the flight, the round-trip flight to Berlin and back, was, I think, a little over $1,000 at the time. And That's pretty that good right is, now. <laughs> which would be pretty good right now, right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, that would provide you access to our platform for five years. You would watch 250 master classes. You would get all of our practice tracks and our upcoming re-release of our practice tracks app. You'd get access to me and our studio group where you can ask questions, you can upload video of yourself, you can participate in our performance classes. I mean, 250 master classes or only the flight back and forth one time to Berlin, plus the cost of lessons, plus the cost of food, plus the cost of housing. I mean, for me, this is a no-brainer if you are someone in that circumstance who might be struggling even to raise $200. For a lot of people that I talk to, they're like, well, when are you gonna lower the price? You know, I have other, I have other people saying, Josh, this price is insane. When are you gonna raise the price on this? And I have the other, the other end of the spectrum as well. So one of our visions is just to be able to, again, give access at different levels, different price points, different ways to everyone and have every single person have access to a world-class percussion education. And that is already happening, but we have, uh, my, that's my life's work. I mean, I've got 20 years ahead of me of building resources for students to make sure that everyone's taken care of. For this project, you are, are you thinking of more specifically the orchestral style percussionist or are you, are you looking towards total percussion? So right now, for sure, because it's my world, it's what I know, it's what I feel most confident about, it's my network of percussionists, it's most obvious to start with the orchestral route. I also feel that it's a little bit of a more tangible goal when I'm saying, if you come participate in this, hopefully you'll get employment opportunities, whether that means subbing with orchestras more often, whether that means uh, getting a regional position, whether that means getting a full-blown, full-time, huge, amazing principal job. Uh, those are very tangible positions that I have achieved, that I know about, and I can feel confident saying, if you go through this pathway with this information, I, it can't get, nothing ever guarantees the job because you have to take an audition, but it can definitely be a very, very good teaching aid along the way. It's going to get you where you want to be faster, better. You know, That I feel confident saying. I don't know about getting a teaching job where mostly you play marimba. You know, I've never done that. I have never been that person. I am not Pius Chung. I am not Nancy Zeltzman, you know? So it's very difficult for me. You know, I am not Pete Zambito, right? I am, I am not one of these people who, who knows about this sort of stuff, right? And so I do want more of those people to kind of come on and talk about that pathway. It's just a matter of, we can't do it all at once, but it's definitely 
high on the priority list to make sure that no matter what type of percussionist you want to be, you could come to Percussion Conservatory and there will be resources for you to achieve that mission. And another, you know, pe people ask me that question a lot, like, is this only for orchestral percussion? But maybe you can answer this for me, that I would assume that every major instructor in the United States has to have familiarity with the rep, with the orchestral repertoire, because students want to do it. Students come to you, and you are that figure who is needing to provide that information for them. You know, is, has that been true in your experience? Have you had to teach a lot of excerpts? Not necessarily, no, um, because okay. I, I've been, most of my involvement has been in music ed style programs. Um, and that's a major focus at Mizzou, and I'm not the primary percussion teacher. Um, so for the most, so it, the, the excerpts part has been, um, at least, at least kind of thinking locally here has been partially done through, um, outside folks have been brought in to kind of do some masterclass stuff that's related to, right. um, to, to that, to improve on, you know, the ability to do auditions because they do have uh, like within the school of music here, every semester they do auditions for the, the ensembles. So it's, right. it's a similar, so it's a kind of system like that. Um, but it's it not, not on the same tiered level that a, that a percussion, that an orchestral one would be with rounds and, and things like that. So there's right. like a, there's like a starting point version of it, at least like I said, in, in the more music ed style programs that, that also have a performance element, but it's not necessarily pushing towards a orchestral level job. Perfect. So, I mean, you and your students would be literally the most ideal candidates to have our educational membership, right? Not to do a sales pitch in the middle of your podcast, That's but fine. It, is, it is true that what we're trying to do is not replace teachers, right? We're right. not trying to say, hey, if you come study with us, you don't need a teacher. No, that's literally the opposite of what we're trying to say. What we're trying to say is, go study at the best possible place you can. You need a mentor. That person's going to guide you through your pathway. Right. While you're doing that, you need to enrich yourself in as many other possible resources as you can to make sure that you become a well-rounded percussionist because well-rounded percussionists, in my experience, are the ones who succeed. They get more opportunities in every which way. Even, for example, orchestral players who know how to play drum set well. They play drum set all the time. They play drum set with their orchestra or they play in jazz bands or they get called for that one pops gig with whoever. I mean, yeah. that happens very, very frequently. And those well-rounded people are the ones who feel the most secure in being percussionists, when you don't only have to rely on your one thing that you do to make a living. So I feel like it's the perfect tandem resource. You know, it's the perfect parallel resource while students are going through something like an education degree. Here is 250 during your degree, 300, whatever, master classes that you can pour through on your time, on your summer break, on your winter break, on your spring break, on, uh, you know, on a lazy Sunday when you just didn't feel like practicing, but you want to do something to enrich yourself, or when you're stuck, you know, uh, man, I have this thing coming up. I really want to audition for this music festival. They have five excerpts on this music festival. Boom, go to the repertoire, watch Will James do it, then go to our other courses and watch 14 other pros do the same thing and amalgamate yourself into this 
sort of generalized, this is how this should go, right? It's, it's not so much that we are trying to become somehow like the, the Darth Vader empire of percussion or something that we want to collect all the resources and then we have all the information and no one else has it. It's just supposed to be, hey man, are you stuck, you know, young man or woman out there, are you stuck with this thing and you want to improve, you want to advance your career down this particular pathway, we have that available to you if you're willing to work. You know, if you're willing to watch the stuff, dig into it and really get your mind wrapped around it, this will accelerate your process drastically. And I just believe in it so much wholeheartedly because all the resources that are on our site are things that I have used myself. To, to be successful. I mean, one of the very first things we did, I called up Will James, gotta get the repertoire on there, Will, because that was an extremely important part of my process, was watching all those videos and learning what a panel of people would be listening for. Same thing, uh, just recently getting ready for this Houston Symphony Sublist audition, I took private lessons to get ready for that, but I was also watching the repertoire again. I was also watching Matt Strauss give masterclasses the day before I went to go play for the Houston Symphony. The amount of confidence that gave me going into the audition is, you can't put like a value number on that. I just was watching one of the judges talk about percussion and then I felt better and then I played well. This is an important aspect of it. And then just one final thing on this is that it's, a, it's also a chance when you're watching the masterclasses to sort of see various people's teaching style. So we're trying to get as many different types of people come to give masterclasses as possible for students to realize there's a lot of different types of people with a lot of different pathways. They've all become successful. You could be like any one of these people. Maybe this person really resonates with you. Go study with them. Like, what's the value of that decision? Choosing the right master's program. Like, you can't put a figure on that. That might change your whole life, you know? So this is also a very important part of the mission for me, is making sure that students get exposed to more opinions and more people. On the orchestral realm, as you've experienced it in your, in your life, this seems like a, a logical thing because of what career or orchestral careers have been. But do you see it that it's very easy for someone who plays in an orchestra to fall into a rut because that is solely what they do? It's hard for me to answer that question because I'm not any of those people, Sure, I guess. Um, I don't know how often orchestral percussionists are falling into ruts, but I... I can answer it in a bit more general way that I've seen a lot of disenchanted orchestral percussionists who just don't like even playing orchestral percussion anymore. That definitely happens. Um, not to scare any of the youngsters out there, but it's, it's a very intense role. You're asked to be on fire like every single week, week after week without fail. Um, you are more or less kind of expected to play flawlessly all of the time. I mean, the, the rep, once you get really comfortable with it, is not tremendously difficult to execute at a high level because you spend so long preparing for that rep, but it can be very taxing to just do the same type of high-level performance week after week. I have you, And you mean, you mean like talk yourself into the mental aspect of being on fire? The people around you who are playing in the orchestra and the conductor and the audience 
are all there. Everyone's coming and kind of expecting you to be able to give 100%. Sure. And that is, it's a difficult task to bring the very best 100% version of yourself week after week after week. And no one really ever does it. Everyone goes out some weeks and they're just only feeling 84%, you know, and you still, whatever your 84% sounds like, it still needs to be exceptionally good. And so I know that that's just a high level pressure for some people. And then uh, the only other thing with a rut is just if your orchestra continues to play the same type of music week after week, that can definitely be a rut for some people. But I do notice that a lot more orchestras are kind of noticing that and you see a lot more new music being programmed all the time. For example, my next concert with Houston Symphony is two pieces that I have n never played before and had never heard of. Um, Price's Ethiopia, Ethiopia's Shadow in America and The Invisible City of Katez, I think is the name of the piece, a Rimsky-Korsakov piece. Both great works that I had never heard of before. So even within that, those are both very, you know, kind of standard classical sounding works in a way. They don't, they don't have that uh, atonal vibe to them. They're not what we would consider sometimes what's considered new music, the new music sound. Um, they're very much in the classical music sort of, they fit that, they're very germane to the classical music uh, idiom. So I think orchestras are noticing that and helping musicians get out of a rut more often, uh, but I, ju I just, I don't know, I'm not sure if that answers the question fully, but I, I can't really speak on other people's behalf of that sort of thing. With the internet alive the way that it is today and now the explosion of AI and all the other things, I just, myself personally, I don't think I've ever been bored like in the past years. I mean, there's just been so much to do and this, the percussion conservatory, how I'm running it is so dynamic and there's so many different aspects of of what it is and how we can help the community. It's just been a very vibrant and exciting life for me recently. Maybe some people feel that way. I'm not sure. If you want to get yourself out of a rut, go for a run. That's what I always tell people. Sure. <laughs> well, uh, let's back up. So you said you grew up, did you grow up in yep. the Houston area? I did. I grew up in Lake Jackson, Texas, about an hour south of Houston. Uh, I moved there when I was six. I was originally born in Maine in way northeast United States, which is why probably I don't have that southern accent thing, or if I do, it's only a twinge of it. Um, and I attended Brazos Wood High School, I, my 6 through 12. And if, for those of you who don't know, Texas is football, and football is marching band. So there's just incredible amounts of marching band, which means drumline is huge here. And so percussion is really, really serious from 6th grade all the way through 12th grade. And that teacher is the same person the whole time in a lot of programs. And so for me, that mentor figure from 6 through 12 was Eric Harper. And my private lesson teacher for most of that time was Craig Hauschildt, who was um, doctor of music from Rice University. And those two people are really the most responsible for everything that came after. Uh, I, I owe them a tremendous amount. I still keep in touch with both of them. I just saw Eric uh, at TMEA. He was in town catching up with some old Texas Tech buddies. Craig was just texting me that we need to go have a margarita at some point. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to see him. I think he's off to Grand Tetons this summer, but he's still here in Houston, still in music. He's uh, uh, fundraising now 
uh, but he still does a ton of percussion playing. Um, and, and it's, yeah, it's, it's very, very cool to have those people who were so important in my life still be in my life. We're all still here in Texas. Uh, Eric lives in Austin. And like I was saying, Houston, uh, Craig is here in Houston. So that's, that's kind of where I got started. Did you have a, a way into percussion? Was it just through school or did you do, were you doing like drum set before? Or what? No, it was just through school. Yeah. I was given the option to choose an elective as a sixth grader and I chose band. I liked the idea of making music. My parents were both music uh, majors and music teachers. So my mom was teaching elementary music. My dad was a choir director. And so I had been around music my whole life, but I didn't have any particular instrument. I wasn't a good singer. Uh, I had played a little bit of piano, which is probably why the transition to percussion was okay, but not more than a year. I was, I really wasn't a serious musician in any sort of way, but sixth grade, that that first year, you really can catch a bug if you have the right teacher. And Eric was just the right teacher. He's a legend around here. In this part of Houston, if you say his name, everybody still knows him. And he hasn't been teaching for over a decade now, I think. So he just was like a huge, huge influence on the whole Houston percussion scene. And that was probably between trumpet and percussion. And my sister said, well, you know, in high school, it's drumline. If you want to be one of the kind of cool guys, the drumline sets up on the, the running track right in front of the football field. They're not in the stands with the band. Like you get to be on the drumline in the front of the band. And, and she made this case for me being a percussionist and why that would be a good idea. And I just trusted her. I was like, okay, sure, I'll play percussion instead of trumpet. And now, 20 years later, I'm still a percussionist, <laughs> which I, uh, I credit my sister a lot for, my sister Kristen. The program you were in, define or explain what resources that meant that you were around when you were junior high, high school. Oh, wow. I've got to zoom back. Time machine, hot tub time machine. Uh, we are thinking about sixth grade here. So we had a four and a third marimba I think it was a key lawn instrument, you know, like, but already from sixth grade in Texas, most of the kids have a chance in, in decent programs that get a decent amount of funding. And that's a whole nother conversation about being equitable with schools. But in, in the schools that hire a percussion person who teaches from sixth to 12th grade, it's very common to have uh, a, a four and a third marimba available to the students from sixth grade. Everyone does practice pads on snare drums, uh, practice, sorry, sticks and pads on a snare drum stand, and then you are very common on a glockenspiel kit, or you are on a practice marimba, a three-octave practice marimba, and that is that was my version. I had the glockenspiel kit and the practice pad, and then there was a marimba in the room. Seventh and eighth grade upgraded a bit. We had the full set of orchestral instruments, bass drum, cymbals, triangle, tambourines, xylophone, vibraphone, marimba. We were playing percussion ensemble from the time I was in seventh grade. We did, even in sixth grade, there was a small percussion ensemble piece. Uh, we played for a Houston Rockets game in sixth grade where at halftime we went and played on the backs of trash cans. I think that piece was called Lids. And it was just a very immersive program immediately. And I got totally swept up in it in the best possible way. Into high school, then we had a Bergerol five octave Rosewood marimba that was available to us. We had 
a bunch of other marimbas, other vibraphones. We had a set of incredible, like the intermediate series of Majestic Timpani. But at the time, Majestic was like the only game in town for that price point and how good those drums sounded. And they're still incredible drums, probably the best intermediate drums for that price point. I had everything that I needed to get ready for Allstate. I did the Allstate process. Uh, all four years. I made it my first three years. That was also very influential. We won PASIC call for tapes for high school ensemble twice. So my freshman year, I was off to Indianapolis. I went to PASIC as a 14-year-old and performed there, saw the whole you know, exhibition floor. I, I really had a, a very uh, <laughs> lucky pathway through percussion. I mean, I, I had someone there who wanted to make the best possible experience for the students. And I kind of recognized that in, in the program that this is unusual. This is not a normal program. You know, this is an unusual gift that I've been given and I should take full advantage of it. So yeah, I practiced a lot. I mean, I was a hardcore practicer. And then in terms of the, the symphony experience, I got into the Houston Youth Symphony program. Uh, which I highly recommend to any youngsters who are listening who are in the Houston area. That program was run and is still run, I believe, by Dr. Michael Webster, who was a clarinet professor at Rice, and he conducts the top group there. And so we played Scheherazade. We played Tchaikovsky 5 that I got to play timpani on. We did uh, too, too many pieces, so many pieces. Um, and we, I think it's three concerts per year with them. So I think I did about nine major orchestra concerts with them during high school. And that really made me feel a lot more secure about going off to undergraduate and feeling like, okay, well, I've done this before. You know, I've played in, a, in an orchestra already. I kind of understand what this looks like. Yeah, that was my sort of Houston beginnings. When you're growing up, were you involved in anything else that was filling out your time, either sports or student government or church-related activities, anything else that you were doing? Sure. I was a very competitive swimmer until mm. I was about 14. I was actually the Texas boys, 14 and under, state champion, breaststroke, 50 meters. Nice. Uh, which was see, very Nobody cool. can see, Josh, nobody can take that away from you. That's the magic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I had aspirations to be an Olympic swimmer until I won that state meet and realized that I was still like several seconds away from even qualifying for like the junior Olympics, you know, yeah, yeah. which if you know anything about swimming at all, three seconds in a 32 second race is like, you might as well pack your bags, you know, right. like you're so, you're, so you're getting behind. smoked actually. Absolutely <laughs> obliterated. So I felt, you know, I felt like a real sense of achievement though, about yeah, yeah. doing swimming. It was extremely competitive. I really liked that energy of like, it's a race. I also really enjoyed about swimming, which is very different from percussion, mm -hmm. that it was not subjective. It was extremely objective, right? Yeah. You jump in, you swim to the other side, you come back and you touch the wall and you're done. And if you first place, you're first place. Yeah. I have always really loved that about mm -hmm. um, like any activity that you can do that's 100% merit-based like that. Yeah or as close to 100% merit-based as possible. It's one of the reasons why our scholarship, as much as I possibly can, like I, I only accept video to try to make sure people are 
actually recording what they say they're recording, and then I extract the audio. I scramble the audio around in a million different ways, and then I send it off to judges blind with only audio, and I like label them in a certain way, and I try to make it extremely objective because mm-hmm. I really believe in that. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of like screens at the audition. I'm a big fan of just anything that we can do to try to make the process more objective. I'm a big fan of. So that doesn't, we're supposed to be talking about things that are not musical here. So the only other things that I was really involved with growing up besides swimming, like before swimming, I was in baseball, uh, mm. all through high school. I was very serious, ultimate Frisbee player. I loved ultimate mm. Frisbee. So I've, I've been always flirting with this idea of, you know, what would I, what would my life would have looked like if I had been an athlete instead of a percussionist or something? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's really it. Those are the only two things that have really made me tick. Um, mm-hmm. I, I still played some piano throughout high school. I, I was really into grades, which I think looking back was maybe in a relevant decision because uh, going into undergrad at Juilliard, they don't even like accept your SAT scores. <laughs> mm. So this was sort of a cart before the horse situation, or maybe mm. I should have um, gone to a school where that would have mattered or gotten credit for it or something. But I was, I took, you know, every AP class and I was, I graduated in like top 1% of my class. And mm. I was so focused on grades Grades, mm-hmm. grades, grades. And then I went to music school and everyone was like, you're such a tryhard, dude. Like, what are you doing? You know, like, yeah. relax. Settle bro. down. Settle <laughs> down, dude. And, I mean, it was it was very funny. And I, I still think in a way that I've never really lost that, like, tryhard attitude. Looking back with perspective on all of that, I think I could have maybe been less of a competitive person and and worried more just about like my own musical enrichment it's just that those two are so inter when you're in texas percussion everything's a competition sure it's all state and it's a competition it's drumline and you get scored and then you go into drum corps and then you go it's like everything's literally scoring and competitions for music so that was like the only world that i knew before i went to college and so i i don't blame myself too much but i've certainly i've certainly out i've liked to think that i've outgrown that mentality yeah yeah. Well, one thing to ask about the swimming part is what is swim practice like? Oh, grueling, <laughs> terrible, awful. Um, the, the practice is actually torture and it's supposed to be, you know, yeah. you're, you are physically torturing your body on purpose more than every other person to make sure that you will beat them on the day. Mm-hmm. You know, however much pain you can handle in the lactic acid buildup in your quadriceps is mm-hmm. how fast you will go on the day, you know? So, uh, it was just for me after doing, I think I swam competitively for about four years yeah. and after that amount of time and finally ending up with, okay, I, you know, I finally did it. I won the state meet. I quit immediately after that. I won state and then that was it. I was like, I'm going out on top. I never want to do that again. It was so brutal and intense. People who swim in the Olympics, I don't know like how they're, they're mentally still okay. And it's the same for all those endurance sports like cycling or marathon running or anything that you have to do where you're on the clock and you're just trying to be faster than other people. Mm-hmm. It is so cross country skiing is another one. Oh, rude. Yes. So apparently I've been told that's actually the worst sport in terms I, of what it does to your body. I can't even imagine the pain that it takes to be at an elite level. I'm sure that there is mental toughness training that you can do to block that out. Like you can, yeah. 
learn how to tell your neurons to stop firing to your pain receptors so emphatically, you know, that we're on fire. Uh Uh-oh, body, we're in trouble. I'm sure you can develop this. But for me, the physical pain of swimming was just so overwhelmingly intense. As a 14-year-old, I don't think the juice was worth the squeeze, you know. (laughs) I was just not, I was not willing. I didn't have that grit. So that was like a grit issue, you know. I didn't have the grit issue with percussion. I could easily, in high school, I would have monster four-hour practice sessions, and then I would see the result, you know. I would go play this thing and I would win some audition. And mm-hmm. I think the thing that was cool about music as opposed to just swimming is when you win the swim meet, it's done that day. But yeah. when you win the percussion audition, mm-hmm. it opens up some new opportunity for you. Right. And so it was all about, it wasn't about the audition. It was about the audition taking you to some other place, some mm-hmm. new journey, some new city, some new experience, new people to meet. And that to me was way more motivating. And so there was like, such a bigger pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. So at 14, my parents actually asked me like, well, you seem to be kind of, you know, doing well at both. Which pathway would you like to do? Because frankly, we can't afford it and we don't have enough time for you to pursue both of these. And that's when I chose percussion. Got it. Yeah. Now, what about the benefits, though, of of probably being able to eat literally whatever you wanted um, <laughs> as, a, as are, a swimmer? I love these questions. This is the best podcast ever, Pete. Um, <laughs> the, uh, 4,000 calories, I think, is like pretty standard. Like you're eating double what you want, you know, yeah. more or less to grow. Uh, that was fine. I think I had the, again, like looking back with perspective, I had the wrong mindset. So like I had the, man, that summer before that state meet, I was on a diet of skim milk, like four cans of tuna fish a day. Uh Um, you know, a lot of bananas to like, to deal with cramping. And then I was just like pounding chicken breast and eggs. There was one time where I was like really mad at my mom. She probably doesn't even remember this, but I was so mad at my mom that she was like kind of unwilling to buy or couldn't find or something went wrong with this carton of like egg whites. So like you can own, like I wanted this specific carton and I don't even remember Uh what the brand was. Like the egg beaters kind of thing? Yeah, like exactly. (laughs) Like the egg beaters carton and it needed to be this certain thing. And then I was just like drinking it. I was like drinking it in a glass. Like I was Rocky or that. Yes, of course. Rocky impersonator. I mean, my mindset going into that swimming thing was like, I needed a, I needed a more personal hands-on coach. Cause I was doing a lot of things wrong, man. I was like <laughs> left to my own devices and the internet was still kind of new. You yeah. know, it was like, the internet was a bit of a wild, wild west kind of place during that time. And YouTube videos were not as polished as what they are today. And yeah. so I was getting crazy information about how to be successful with swimming. Some of it obviously worked and some yeah. of it made, made sure that I never pursued swimming ever again, you know? <laughs> Uh, so that was, yeah, I, I did not have a good relationship with food while I was a swimmer, unfortunately. Yeah. It's pretty taxing, t- taxing to eat that much. I mean, cause the person that comes to mind is Michael Phelps, Yeah, Michael Phelps, because he would, when that was one of the things that, that one of the reasons he like really wanted to retire, he's like, he's like, I hate training. And, and oh, they yeah. would talk about like, he was probably, he said something like six to 12, like an absurdly high amount and he's like, you don't understand how much actual eating that is. <laughs> it's like, it's so like much three food. grand slam breakfasts, and that's just to get started. <laughs> that's like, yeah, your pre your pre uh, workout routine would be yeah. like two thousand calories just to start, you know, because you yeah. need like fuel to even begin the swim. 
Yeah, it's it's intense. I mean, one of my heroes at that time was Brendan Hansen, who was like the the U.S champion and i think for one year the olympic champion gold medalist of breaststroke Um, i I think for the hundred meter and maybe also the 200 but i'm pretty sure definitely for the hundred and this guy is built like adonis man i mean he is just so jacked like when you think of swimmer you usually think of someone who looks a little bit more like Michael Phelps. They're long. They're kind of lanky. He's definitely buff, but he's, yeah. he looks like almost like he's a pterodactyl. You know, he's like strong sure. in a scary way. Brendan Hansen just looked like um, an actual superhero, you know, yeah. like in the flesh. Like if he, if he would, if he had been a good actor, he would have been Captain America or whatever. He's just sure. massive, massive beast of a human. Mm-hmm. I can, I just can't even imagine the, the both the physical toil of like earning a body like that while also to be just to be that size and to burn that many calories per day because it's one thing to be a bodybuilder where you're not doing all that cardio but it's mm-hmm. when you're a swimmer and you're that size yeah it's it's crazy i mean these guys are superhuman and, and it's re- they really are and that's why they become one of one. I mean, they become right. the best in the entire world. Could you imagine if you went to a percussion audition <laughs> and you had to be first place out of the entire world? Yeah. You know, I mean, only a hundred people show up to most auditions, which is already like, you feel like your chances are unfathomably small. I tell this to people all the time. Like percussion is actually like the cards are in your favor, man. Like there's some <laughs> industries out there that are stacked in ways that you just can't even, you can't even fathom, you know, all the people who live in China versus you at swimming. It's like, good luck, man. You know, it's, it's really, really hard. And so anyways, when I was, I was feeling all of this, like, yes, I think percussion is actually a better, a better fit for me, you know? Yeah. 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 The other thing that was kind of fun about whenever you'd see swimmers that you, again, is like one of those unless you see a context of it, you don't get it, is there was a picture, um, I forget which Olympics it was, it might have been Rio, and it was Kevin Durant and Draymond Green and uh, Kyle Lowry yeah. with like five of the the men's swimmers. And, and Kyle Lowry was like almost cropped out of the photo. He was so <laughs> much shorter than literally everyone else. Like all those top swimmers are like six, seven, six, eight, like yeah, they're, they're super long. <laughs> they're totally monsters. And a lot of that just has to do with the jump, you know, like yeah. just that, that initial leap off of the platform, especially mm-hmm. for sprinting is yeah. such a huge advantage. Like if you're just at a, if you're at a mechanical advantage to jump off of that platform, mm-hmm. you just can't freestyle your way fast enough. I mean, it's hundredths of a second that you're competing against. So there's no, there's just no room for that error. So some of it, yeah, it's like, it's unfortunate. I think I also really liked that about music in general is that you can be basically any like body shape. Like you can be born with just about any type of proclivity, you know, like, oh, I, I'm kind of short okay, you can be a percussionist. Like, oh, well, my lips are too big for my body size. It's like, dude, you are going to smash tuba. You know, like there right. are, there are so many options uh, like available to you through music. And I feel like sports can be a little bit more limiting that way, just in terms of like who is, who has access to the thing. You can always have fun with it and just play with yeah. your friends or whatever. But, um, you know, music is, music is really powerful that way that there's very few people who are just, the quote unquote tone deaf. Like you're just, you're never going to be a musician. It's absolutely impossible for you. It's like, 
play drums, dude. You can't hear, you can't play like the drum set, maybe not marimba, you know, maybe not tune the timpani, but like you can be a drum set player, like for sure, you know? Oh, you can't hold a beat? All right, now we're talking, if you truly, truly can't hold a beat, all right, maybe this is tougher because all music needs that, but there's so few people that I have found that 100% cannot hold a beat when taught properly. You know, I mean, it's that's so it's cool. I, I really dig that about music. And and I'm I'm very much a I feel like sort of a music music, a classical music evangelist. Like I really want to get more people involved with it. And that's why we're so loud on social media, you know, and and I do crazy things. And I, I'm really not concerned with what people think of me personally. I just I couldn't care less. You know, I just want people to get exposed to great ideas and to classical music. And so we try to do as much of that as possible. That's, yeah, it's been great. You know of Juilliard, I'm going to guess, but how do you, how do you, how does it come to you that you're like, actually, I should try to go there? Right. Yeah, they had a, they're crafty, man. Juilliard, you know, they're, they're top of the ball game in terms of marketing. And so you kind of can't, not know about Juilliard if you are interested in classical music. It's just almost impossible. If you get really caught up in, wow, I'm looking around at all the places to do classical music, like as soon as you go type classical music into Google and study and I'm 16, they just, they have won every vertical. <laughs> so that was really kind of, you know, they, they won me over in that way. It was just like everywhere I looked, there was Juilliard and it just became this like more of an idea than anything else. Just, oh, I want to go to Juilliard, right? But what happened to me specifically is I went in junior year to uh, the Juilliard Summer Percussion Seminar and the students that I met there, like the current students who were helping host the, uh, the seminar were so talented and they were so welcoming and they so wanted you to succeed. And in high school, as much as I, I mean, I'm singing Eric Harper's praises, I'm saying I had this amazing, super lucky experience. I was a bit of a outsider in the drum line in mm -hmm. that I was really focused on classical music. I really wanted to do the orchestra thing. I was really interested in all state. And most of the percussionists were like wearing, camo pants yeah. and they were on the drum line and they were Texas people and their dads took them hunting quite literally. And mm -hmm. it, was, it was just not always the culture for me. That culture, mm -hmm. I didn't quite fit in. I was pretty, uh, stupidly, I was vocally kind of against the culture, which led to a lot of um, f just feeling not always comfortable there, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I went to Juilliard, and I experienced the, the literal opposite, like, oh my gosh, I have found my people. You know, right. like, the, the, this is my tribe. You know, this is my flock. I was meant to fly here. When yeah. I felt that for the first time, it just became such a singular mission. Like, blinders went on, and I was like, I'm going to do everything in my power to get into this school. You yeah. know, I was hyper, hyper focused. That last, the last, like, year and a half before that audition was just totally, totally ridiculous in terms of what I was doing with my time. Like I was skipping, not skipping class, but I was like signing up for classes at a community college. <laughs> 
I think it was just called Fitness Center was like the name of the class. And it was like hosted at the community college. And you could just go and like put in a time card, but then you could do anything with you wanted with that time as long as you returned back to the community college and like checked out your time card. So I would like zoom over to the college in my Toyota Tundra pickup truck, scan my type, scan my time card, go back to the high school, like practice a bunch and then go back to the community college and scan my time card again, just so that I could have like an extra hour to, to shed you know, and that I just wanted to go so badly. I wanted to move to New York. I didn't want to be in Texas anymore at the time. Now it's funny because I was like, oh, I want to move back to Houston. But at the time I was just so ready to get out. I was such a classic teenager of like, my parents don't understand me, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Like I just, I felt like it's time to go, you know, and I was so excited about that news of finding out that I got in and I more or less auto accepted their offer. But I will say that I also auditioned and got into Manhattan School of Music and the Rice, uh, Rice University, Shepherd School of Music. And they were, you know, I, I don't think I could have gone wrong at any of those places. I am extremely grateful to all of the, you know, the, the people who gave me a chance, who were willing to take a chance on me early in the career there. And for, you know, my artist diploma, I did end up coming back to Shepherd School of Music uh, for about six months before I got the job in Malaysia. And, um, you know, Matt Strauss is one of my truly idols. You know, I don't like to say that too much that I idolize people, but he's, he was an, a real idol of mine going through high school, seeing him play all those guys in the symphony, you know, seeing them play, what they did, how they were able to do it. So the opportunity to study with him, and he had previously studied with Greg Zuber, who was my teacher at Juilliard, so it was just a really good fit. And yeah, I'm, that was that was a very cool experience. So even though I didn't go to those, you know, even though I didn't start at Rice, I chose Juilliard. I still always kept that in the back of my mind as a place that I would really would have liked to go. And these days, you know, even there's always been a lot of great places to go for undergrad. I think that it's exploded in the past, just like ten years. Actually, the level of teaching at all of these different undergrad programs now is just so ridiculously high um, that you can truly go like to 80, 100 different schools and completely have a successful career in a lot of different pathways. I think that that probably was available while I was auditioning for undergrad, but it didn't seem that way to me. It seemed like you have to get into one of these 10 schools or like your life is over, you know, like you'll never make it unless you get into one. I don't think that's true anymore. Um, I have seen recently, especially becoming part of, you know, this, this role where so many different types of students are messaging me from all over the country at different types of schools and we're getting but we're getting people winning jobs from schools I had previously never heard of. Like I was like, I didn't know that this was a college. And they're like, yeah, I just won my local symphony audition. It's like, this is amazing. You know? So I really do think that uh, the, the landscape of what's possible has changed. And I think as resources are continuing to grow and more things are going online, access to the right information is also being democratized. And so more students are, it's, it becomes a lot more about, are you hungry for the success? in a very continued pathway. Because if you're hungry for the success in a year, it's not gonna happen. But if you have a 10 year hunger to be successful in the percussion career pathway, you will make it. You know, it will, it will happen. It, there, there are enough opportunities and it's an abundant, you have to have an abundant mindset, you know, that you can, you can even create an opportunity if it doesn't exist yet. You know, I, I see people doing that all the time now. There's, hey, I've started a, 
I started another uh, refurbishment center for instruments. You know, I see people doing that now. Uh, and that used to that used to be very much like, oh, the information is so protected. This only happens in Chicago or this only happens in New York. Nope. Now it happens in everywhere because you can you can access this information just by asking around on Facebook groups and everywhere else. So it's if, if you are hungry for the success, it, it comes it, it will come. It will come. When you get there, what kinds of things are because you have this this background that you do? Um, in the Houston system, uh, what are the things that your teachers at Juilliard realize, or you feel like they were like either a hole or something that was you needed to definitely work on? Um, maybe you knew it; they definitely knew it. What kinds of things did you notice when you start there? So I was a real, real like hotshot type of kid you know, coming yeah, in. I'm, yeah. I, yeah, man, I'm 18. Yeah. I'm this, I'm this state champion yeah. swimmer and I'm, yeah, yeah of I'm course a, that you led with that. You led yeah, with I mean, the, yeah, the breaststroke. Yeah. I am a, you know, I am a 18 year old phenom and I just got into Juilliard and, and I yeah. tried to keep it. I was aware that if I just like said all those things out loud, like you come across as such a jerk, right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I knew to not keep, I knew to keep my mouth shut and not say those things out loud, but I don't think there was any hiding that that's how, that was what my mindset was. And sure. I think that that's a very double edged sword. I think it has led to a lot of success for me to think like, I know I can do this. I am incredible. I believe in myself. That very positive affirmation. It can also be very limiting if you are, not willing to let other information into your brain, right? right? If you're like, I am the best, I don't need this information from these people. That is really dumb, you know? So I think I was a little bit caught up in both of those pathways of, you know, needing to find a slightly more healthy balance. And so Greg Zuber is a total magician. I mean, this guy read me like a book and he knew what to do. Like he just knew that that was inside me and that if he pushed too hard that I would like revolt. And he knew that if he didn't push hard enough, he wouldn't be giving me the information I needed. And so he would do, he would do hilarious things to me. Like he would have me go through a massive content project. Like you're gonna play five um, like rags in like a month, you know? And, and a lot of times it's like, here you go, student, here's a rag for like your semester project or whatever, like one tough rag. He, he would just give me like way more than I could chew. Cause he's like, all right, you think you're a hotshot? Here's five rags, you know, boom. I want to hear this immediately. I want to hear this as soon as possible. And then he would just act like that was normal. Like that's what he did with every single student who ever had come through the school. And I'm sure I am not the only one who he has done this to. I'm sure this was something he developed over many years of teaching is meeting students like me and, and knowing what to do. And then at the end of the process, he would say something like this. He's like, man, I'm really proud of you. You know, it's just... Whew, it's, it's nice to hear you not sounding like a dying, clawing cat anymore. And I would be like, whoa. And it was so intense to have, to have someone talk to me that way, who I like so deeply respected and felt like I was just destroying the mission and I had accomplished every task. And then for him to say like, at the beginning of this process, you were like pathetic, you know? And he did it in this weird loving way that was never malicious. He is like still to this day, I think the friendliest, best like mentor type person, like just warm and cuddly, you know? I'm just a wonderful, wonderful human. And so, and I owe him a lot. I mean, he was, he really shaped 
me into a new type of person during the undergrad. Probably even more so than a player, he shaped me as a person. And, and so he would do this, you know, he, he would say that sort of thing. And then that would make me realize, oh, you know, like I'm holding the sticks too tight, right? Like, oh, I don't use my wrists enough. I'm like arming everything out. Oh, this, oh, that. And yeah, there were all sorts of holes. I mean, I think that, um, I, I think there were some technical things that I just was caught up in still, even though I, I didn't think I was doing it, the Texas drumline thing of just kind of playing with a lot of tension. You have to play really massive. Yeah. I think I was overplaying a lot. I think I was used to playing very big because we were playing outside on a football field, and now you're playing inside for a small room um, by comparison. You know, sometimes concert halls are not so small, but small room a lot of the times. And there were other things too, just like um, professionalism things that I needed to work out. I think a lot of my issues were you know, organizational while I was going through undergrad. I had organizational holes, like being able to uh, tackle multiple projects at the same time. That was very different. In Texas, it was always like, and now we're doing frontline. And then you would do that for like four months. And now we're doing Allstate. And then you would do that for like three months. And in undergraduate, it was, here's all your music classes and then on top of these music classes, you need to be prepared for your orchestra concert. Plus lessons are a completely different material than your orchestra concert. Plus, the, I mean, and there were so many versions of that. And so, you know, like I double booked myself a couple times. I, I told you earlier in this podcast, I was such a grade monger. You know, I was so concerned with my grades. Yeah. No joke, Juilliard was the first time in my entire life I ever made a B in anything on a report card, you know, the first time, which I thought was so ironic. It's like, finally, I'm here doing the thing that I love to do the most of anything else ever. And I was like, not perfect at it all. I was just like any other person. I didn't test out of any music theory. I had been playing piano for years. I still had to do a semester of piano. So I think that there was just this, you know, in terms of a whole, I think it was realizing like, you might think that you're so great because you were really good in Houston. Welcome to the real world. You know, there are a million other students just like you. They play all different sorts of instruments and they are all a zillion times better than you. So good luck. You better keep practicing, you know. And, and I think that that was probably just the biggest hole of all was just making sure that I was able to continue to progress despite this massive destruction of the ego that was going to Juilliard and witnessing violinists and pianists, you know, run around Chopin in front of you like they've been doing it since they were four, probably because mm -hmm. they have been. And yeah. then, like, you're still on month three and you can't play your four mallet solo well, you know? And so it was, you know, it was, it was challenging, I think, mentally. But it, all, all for the best. All came out of it stronger. Was there a welcome to New York moment? <laughs> Um, in a positive or a negative way? Both. Both. Like a, you trying to ride the subway and have no idea about direction. Oh, like a, a bit sarcastic, like welcome to New York. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, <laughs> there was, oh, man, I can't remember what year this was. I, I think it might have been like all the way into my sophomore year. I think my freshman year, I played it very safe. You know, I was mostly at the campus. I didn't really do a lot of things off the campus. You're so busy the first two years while you're there at school. You know, you're, you're mostly just in the bubble. You're totally in the bubble, and that's a good thing. You should be in the bubble, right? But as you start to kind of branch out, you're like, okay, I've got my sea legs now. I'm ready to go do things. There was a Halloween party that I was trying to go to uptown, 
And my buddy of mine, uh, who I will not say his name, uh, because I don't know if he wants me to share this story publicly or not, but we were dressed up as like, I think a pirate. And then I was the karate kid and we got off. We thought we were taking the one train uptown, but the one train had been rerouted. So we were actually on the two, but we weren't paying attention because you know, it's Halloween and you can imagine what Halloween means when you're a college kid, right? We were having a great time. And (laughs) we, I think we got off on the two train going uptown at Malcolm X Boulevard, completely unaware that we had just walked off the subway station into like very much the wrong part of town when you're dressed as the karate kid and a pirate, right? So we were just getting like mercilessly harassed by every single person who like lived on the block that was like, you're in the wrong part of town and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we were in the wrong part of town for how we were acting, right? And I had the brilliant idea because I was cheap. I was super cheap at this time not to get in a taxi cab and just take us over to the party. I was like, look, man, look at the phone. We're really not that far away. If we just walk really fast, we can just walk over there. Like the train's not going there. Let's just walk. And we walked and it was just, it was a bad idea. It was a really, really, really bad idea to walk on October 31st in the, like in the night, like very late at night, two people dressed in costumes. I mean, it was I felt very unsafe. So that was a very welcome to New York moment. Sorry, mom, not trying to stress you out. I don't know if she knows that story. (laughs) That's funny. What are the range of typical experiences for someone at Juilliard doing percussion? Because are you doing expected to be in ensembles and percussion ensemble? And so because you mentioned like ensembles and lessons, but was there also like the percussion ensemble portion or ensembles portion? Yeah. Yeah. Percussion ensemble was, as you were saying, like it was something that I felt very confident in playing with others. Um, so that was something that we are required to do, but the type of music we were playing was very different. So it went from playing, you know, here's your marimba part, high school. Yeah. And then you get to college and we were playing Cicle by Gilbert Ami and you need to play all of the unglocken, you know, and, and it was just like, I am so lost. And I remember Dan Druckmann, oh my gosh, I have never felt more embarrassed in my life and just mercilessly crucified by someone where I forgot to bring in like a crital. Like I was kind of running late to the rehearsal. I was setting up, my setup looked like a mess. And everyone's, there's like, I don't remember how many players, seven players, nine players, a ton of players. And everyone's going all over the place with this piece. And he just stops rehearsal. And I, I don't know if he, if he can actually hear this well. He probably can. Or if he just knew that I was like the freshman he needed to pick on or whatever. He stops rehearsal and just looks over and says, like, Vonderheide, play your part at measure whatever it was, 47. And I'm playing the part and the octave is going the wrong direction on the crotal. And he's like, why are you transposing that down in octave? Like, what are you doing? Why are you making that decision? And I was like, I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't I, I grabbed the wrong stuff. And he and just and the and he just sat there in silence for what I feel like was probably like a half minute, which anyone knows like when you're in trouble is more than an eternity, you know? And just that was and that was like welcome to percussion ensemble. And that was the class I gotta be in. Yeah, it was my first year, my first semester of percussion ensemble. Um, but you know, percussion ensemble at Juilliard, I feel like is one of the most intense percussion ensembles in the country. 
I know a lot of people do percussion ensemble at the highest possible level, but when you are an undergrad getting thrown in with master students, the way that Druckmann does the ensembles there is more or less like, it does not matter what year you are in school, you just get thrown in, man. Like, so you are playing rep way above your head immediately. And that's really a huge portion of the time that you spend. So we have rep classes where Dan would do um, orchestral masterworks with us. A lot of a lot of schools do this. You know, you, you come in, you have your parts prepared, and then he teaches you how to play the whole section. He's got the score in front of him. We had that class. We had actual percussion ensemble class where we were playing percussion ensemble pieces, where we have a percussion ensemble concert. We had also what's called just, um, I think it was called winds, brass, and percussion rep class or something. And that at the time was led by mostly Jeff Malarski and Mark Gould. I think my first year was mostly Mark Gould at the time. And that's like a pianist is playing all the string parts and you're playing everything else. The winds, brass, percussion are there playing everything else. There was the standard stuff, piano, ear training, music theory, music history. You have to take some amount of humanities courses, you know, like intro to Greek literature or whatever that, you know, they have signed up for you for that year. I think one year I took poetry. But that's the majority of what you're doing. And then also you're always in a, a certain number of orchestra cycles uh, every semester. I think they usually do something like three orchestra cycles for every student um, each semester. And so you're, you're doing a lot of playing. It's a lot. They, they, um, if, you are, if you walk into Juilliard for your undergrad and you are not thoroughly ready to be a percussionist, you will know right away. I mean, because that's, you, you're, you are 12 hours a day minimum, just, you wake up at eight and you go to your first class and you're, I mean, I don't think I was ever done my first two years until nine or 10. And, and a lot of classes at, at the school, and I don't really know about all the other, other, other undergraduate programs, but a lot of things at the school, like rehearsals are from seven to 10 PM, just because that's when the faculty are available. You know, that's the only time in their day. They have, they're teaching lessons all day and then there's some rehearsal and so you're there late. There's a couple other ensembles as well, like you're saying chamber groups. There's one that was called Axiom Ensemble, and Axiom was chamber music for usually um, percussion plus uh, some other number of people, like maybe 11, like a Piro Ensemble, or you could do, maybe Axiom would do, our first year was uh, music for 18 musicians, something like this, where it's kind of contemporary uh, percussion plus. And then there was also the new, I'm gonna get this name wrong, new Juilliard Ensemble, I think was the name of it. Um, and that was all new music. That was 100%, like basically 100% premieres or very, very recent premiere or Western Hemisphere premiere, North America premiere. Um, and that was something that some people really liked to do and some people were like, please don't make me play in this ensemble. Just because it was always, a, it was always like a, a big setup. There were a ton of rehearsals. It was something that was like extra. So we all just, it was kind of like, the joke was a little bit like, okay, who's gonna draw the short straw? Or like, I helped you move this massive amount of gear last week for your recital. You're gonna go play in the new music ensemble. But then, then there were other people who just like ate that stuff up and that's what they love to do. So it was, it, yeah, it was a very, very healthy mix of requirements.
end, you'll hear the rest of the interview next week, so stay tuned. This week's rave is the 2022 film Monica, starring Trace Lissette, Patricia Clarkson, Emily Browning, and Joshua Close, and written and directed by Andrea Payaoro, now available on streaming services. Trace Lissette stars as Monica, a woman returning to her childhood home to care for her ailing mother, played by Patricia Clarkson. Her return home also connects her to her sister-in-law, played by Emily Browning, and reconnects her with her brother, played by Joshua Close. While this may not seem like a very notable plot, what I'm not telling you is that the main character is a trans woman being played by a trans actress making it both unique and, of the themes of the film, very much a classic movie. This is a film that is very much about the themes of abandonment, family, pain, and memory. One of the main plot points, and I'm not giving up very much here, is that Clarkson's ailments related to cancer are messing with her memory to the point that Lisette's character is unrecognizable to Clarkson because... Lisette's previous existence in that house growing up was as male identifying. Kudos need to go out for the whole film. The tone established by the writer-director Palioto seems almost documentary-like with lots of static image shots, no movie score aside from what's played in the film itself, and some unusual video framing. Browning and Close are great as a married couple going through a tough time while also working through their own thoughts with Monica back in the picture. Clarkson in particular is incredible as the ailing mother. This portion felt very real and was so good that it would be great if the frequently underrated Clarkson got some awards buzz for her performance. She's wonderful. But the real revelation and the star of the film is Trace Lissette playing Monica. The emotional challenges her character deals with, the range of problems, the buried and unburied resentments she's dealing with, and all of the concerns that she has to take into account are all there. It's a star-making performance for an actress who's been in the industry for 10 years and is likely best known for the series Transparent. All in all, a wonderful, difficult movie that you should make sure to check out. See Monica. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook... Like the page, Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for part two with Joshua Vonderheide. Until then.